0: Open God's word to Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 um, to chapter 4, verse 1. It's on page 955 in your Bibles. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favouritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. The word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Kath. Uh, Such simplicity and such directness, but not so easy to say, thanks be to the Lord. See, words like this hit the heart of our squeamish sensitivities, don't they? Uh, Passages like this even get our backs up. Uh, These are the kinds of words that get us in trouble with non-Christians, and also the kind of words that get us in trouble with one another when we avoid them or whether we grab them and misuse them. And so for many Christians, rather than embracing these words with joy as words from our God who loves us, who's given us new life and who knows what's best for us, well, we prefer instead to twist them or squirm away from them because of just how counter-culturally confronting they are and they are no Australian woman is comfortable with the thought of submitting themselves to a man and so no Christian wives like this passage Australian men despise being told to be sensitive and caring so no Christian man likes this passage either none of us are a fan of obeying our parents So no Christians with a living parent like this. Dad jokes prove that fathers secretly enjoy exasperating their children. (laughs) So Christian dads hate this passage. And then there's all that stuff about slaves and masters that sounds like it's coming from the pre-enlightenment dark ages, which no modern Christian wants to be seen standing anywhere near, much less agreeing with in some way. Every single sentence here makes us squeamish and on edge so what do we do is outright rejection how we should handle the word of god you know ignore it keep it closed well that's certainly what non-christians do what of us what do we prefer do we prefer the hollow and deceptive philosophies of the world telling us what to do rather than god's word do we prefer self-lordship rather than you know the lordship of christ well of course not we're christians but boy oh boy do we need more grace to grapple with this and so let's do that let's let's ask for god's help let's make use of question five let's humble ourselves to pray and ask god's help to get our heads around this will you pray with me oh heavenly father You speak to us with clarity and directness and you address us in places where we don't want to listen. I thank you for caring and speaking boldly as you do and caring about us and how we relate as Christians. And We would ask you to please help us to listen to you now and maybe to begin to trust for us, ...might be better than ours for ourselves. Uh, Please give us more grace to consider and understand your word before us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alrighty, so we can think clearly about what's in front of us here. Let's first remember, if we can, the context in which these commands are found... ...and what a colossal context it is where we find these words remember where we've been over the past six weeks? Remember the the, the setting for these words that we've been examining is glorious and wonderful and it's been the source of so much rejoicing amongst us since the start of October. Do you remember that? Remember chapter one? Remember how we learned uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord over all things in heaven and on earth and is the one through whom we have been given peace with God eternally? That he's rescued us from their dominion of darkness and in him we have redemption, reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of our sins, the mystery of the ages past has been revealed to us in Jesus. How good is that? And remember also chapter 2, uh, we learn that we are already have fullness in Christ, that we already have fellowship with Christ, that we already have Freedom in Christ, that we've died with him, we've been raised with him, therefore we don't actually need the world's way of thinking. Those hollow and deceptive philosophies that will kidnap, condemn or disqualify us from delighting in God's goodness. And what about that magnificent start to chapter 3 that we looked at last week? that we have been raised with Christ, that he is our life. We are his chosen people, holy and dearly loved, with a secure identity in Christ that can't be taken from us. And that in him we have power to take off whatever doesn't match our heavenly identity and start to put on what does. So many good things. Maybe this isn't as bad as it first sounds, if that's where we find it. And in actual fact, it's those behaviors and virtues that were listed there earlier in chapter 3 that you can see there in front of you that supply the countercultural content of this life of repentance the behaviors and virtues that will make the difference in our relationships as we continue following Jesus and we do continue following Jesus because we Christians have so much to live for don't we and this is the colossal context of good things in which we find today's instructions. So with, with Jesus Christ as our Lord, we're citizens set free to live a whole new way in this world as we make our way to glory with him in the next. And so of course then, of course, the life of repentance is countercultural. It doesn't match this culture. Everything about following Jesus is countercultural. And so, whether you're currently a Christian wife or husband or child, father, slave or master, living under the Lordship of Christ will change how we approach each role. How could it not? And this passage now zeroes in on the key behaviours within each role that matches the life of repentance for that role. But before we look at each of them individually, did you notice what jumps out collectively from the whole bunch, from these commands, as Kath read it out for us? Did you notice? Did you notice that each command is voluntary? Did you notice that? And did you notice that each of them, none of them, are conditional? First of all, they're totally voluntary. Each Christian is to apply it to themselves. No one is commanded to impose it on anyone else. No one is empowered by God to lord it over someone and say, here's what you've got to do. Now the choice remains entirely with the Christian being addressed. Oh, that's liberating, isn't it? Straight away. And just as liberating, we also notice that the commands here, well, none of the commands are conditional upon the good behaviour of the other person first. So it's not for us to reward them with our good behaviour if they behave well, if they, you know, please us first. There's no conditions here. There's no you first, then me. There's no excuses. Because it's the Lord Christ we are serving. And it's His Lordship that is the reason we would even consider or choose to obey these things. Because it's with Him that we will appear in glory and therefore living with him now well it means striving to live his way not our way and not the world's way so with those things in place there's all the general stuff well let's zero in now let's zero in on that first couplet there which is addressed to wives and husbands verses 18 and 19 where we read wives submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord." Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, these should be read together and not separated. Um, And at the same time, we are each, notice there, to take responsibility for voluntarily obeying the Lord, irrelevant of the other person. No conditions. And we must also be careful not to separate these commands from the marriage context and apply them to all Christian women and all Christian men outside of marriage or in different marriages to our own if we're married. So if you're a Christian wife here, then your husband is in view alone. And if you're a Christian husband here, then your wife is in view alone. And if you're a Christian here who doesn't currently have a wife or a husband, then these commands don't currently apply to you. But stay tuned because these are very good fodder for your prayers for all those Christians who you do know who are married. What would you pray for them? Well, pray this. And as the inventor of marriage himself, well, God's instruction is what we truly need. And when we pause and consider it, his instruction well, it even manages, manages to deliver what we actually want in Christian marriage. You see, I'm not a Christian woman, you probably worked that out, but Christian women assure me that they would joyfully submit themselves to a man who loves them with compassion, who overlooks their faults, who cherishes them in their weakness, and who is gentle with them in their distress, who is not harsh or critical with them that they long for a man who honours Jesus first and then because of Jesus, strives to treasure his wife instead of treasuring alcohol, money, achievement, pornography, sport, work or entertainment. And so when God commands Christian husbands to love their wives like verse 19, well the Christian women all want to cheer, as is fitting in the Lord, apparently, they'd love to respect and submit themselves to a man who strives to love them like that. Meanwhile, Christian men, I am one of those, uh, and a few of them have reported to me that they would delight to have a wife who respects them and lets him be her champion. It's been said that a man's best friend is his dog. But that only ever happens in a Christian marriage if his wife refuses to respect her husband, and when that happens, the dog, the shed and the workplace are a very attractive alternative. But a Christian wife who patiently bears with his faults and upholds his dignity, who doesn't undermine him with the kids or treat him like just another one of the kids needing mothering, who doesn't remind him of his errors or openly evaluate everything he says, but encourages him with her words instead? Well, it's a delight to love and cherish such a one. So when God commands Christian wives to submit themselves to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord, like we have here, verse 18, then Christian husbands say, yes, please. I could love and cherish a woman who respects me like that. And all of that becomes possible, and in fact it only becomes possible, when we each submit ourselves first to the Lordship of Christ. That's where it starts. And, and it's then that we can really start exploring how we might do these things. And it just so happens that when all Christians get busy encouraging the married Christians to live God's way in our marriages, then we have so much to offer the world around us, so much more than we think we do. Because not only does Christian marriage point to the astounding and amazing relationship of Christ and his church, Christian marriage is a signpost to that, but also Christian marriage can be the signpost of what life-giving care and respect really looks like in practice. You heard Bruce pray just now, and one of the things he prayed for was that yesterday, November 25, was the international day to eliminate violence against women and girls. And it marks the first of 16 days the United Nations is attempting to bring to the attention of the whole world the facts of violence against females worldwide. Uh, Their research declares that across the world, five women or girls are killed every hour by someone within their own family. And for those who survive, one in three will suffer physical, sexual or psychological violence in their lifetime. We grapple with that. And and yes, they acknowledge, as you go to give you, they acknowledge that terrible things happen to women and girls in times of war. Yes, indeed. But the real problem, the real problem, is what happens within our own homes all the time. All the time. In Australia. A Christian woman will die every fortnight in Australia from domestic violence. They don't tell us a statistic of how many are injured and go to hospital, but don't die. But one will every fortnight. Does this also happen in Christian marriages? In Christian marriages? Does it happen there? Oh, yes, it does. It does happen there. It happens whenever Christian men ignore God's command here in verse 19 and give in to worldly sensual indulgence instead. Oh, men, prayerfully and humbly listening to God on this is where our repentance needs to start so that we then clothe ourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience in marriage. And not just men, not just men, because... Domestic abuse against men in marriage is not as rare as we might think. And that too begins when Christian wives refuse God in verse 18 and give in to worldly sensual indulgence instead in the same way. Can I say, if, if if anyone in our church right now is in need of help because of domestic violence or abuse of some description, please, please make use of that information that we've printed into your sermon outline there. The contact details are there. And it's also in our e-news this week. If you're watching online, it's in the e-news or listening in. We also have a special resource that's been put together for Australian Christian women recovering or trying to recover from domestic abuse written by Anglicare here in Sydney. There's copies in our church here that you could borrow. Uh, if you want to read it for yourself or read it for someone you're supporting, helpful in both cases. And if you'd rather access it privately, follow the QR code link in all that stuff in the e-news and you can pick up one separately. Christians, there's no room for complacency. There's no room for turning a blind eye. There's no excuse. Change must happen. And if it doesn't start with us, where will it start? And and thankfully under God, it can start here. Because remember, he's the God who empowers us for repentance and forgiveness as we've been forgiven. Uh, He's the one who gives us a chance for new beginnings even now. And most wonderfully of all, he gives us eternal life to come where there will be no mourning, where there will be no death, no crying, nor pain. We have that to look forward to at the other end of all. But until then, and until then, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, there's no excuse. We Christians need to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And we need to learn to entrust the timing of our contentment and the timing of our happiness to him. to trust the timing of our contentment and our happiness to him. And Paul continues <laughs> and we'll try to and the second couplet well that's addressed now to children and fathers verses 20 and 21 children obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord fathers do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged now John Farnham nailed it when he sang we're all someone's daughter we're all someone's son And we're all children, Well, all of us are children, and unless your parents are deceased, then this applies to every Christian child, regardless of our age. It's not just for the young ones in junior teens and kids' church and creche. No, not just for them. Yes, it's true that the terms and method and means of obedience should vary as we get older. And once we live separately to our parents, it becomes, well, not only more difficult to obey them, it should change the way obedience looks. And the nature of that obedience should look very different from when we live under their house and under their care. Yet even from a distance, it pleases someone for us to obey them. Did you notice who it pleases? Who does it please? It doesn't please them. Who does it please? The Lord, yeah, look at the passage. It's not about pleasing them, it's about pleasing who? Pleasing the Lord. It's the Lord we're seeking to please. And when we do what pleases the Lord and continue to honour our parents with obedience, well then, (laughs) remember that what pleases Him and how we treat them is the path we actually lay down for how our kids who are watching us will treat us in turn. Now wrap your head around that one for a moment. The path we lay down and how we do this is what they're seeing and will then follow through on. And so as counterculturals it might feel to obey our parents, well, God has our good and our longevity in mind as he says this, our good and our longevity in mind, not our extended torture. Which is why he goes on now to address fathers here in the next sentence. So, and because, of course, a father has... Well, he carries authority and power in a family more than he realises and especially more when he has a Christian wife who chooses to submit herself to him. And it then is and becomes the tragic normal outcome for a father to embitter their children toward him and toward everything he stands for. All dads are naturally good at this. Isn't that great to know something we're just naturally good at? Well, this is what it is. And sociologists who examine our prisons are the first to tell us that. Kids follow their fathers and mimic their attitudes and actions toward everything. Toward their mother. Toward women in general. Toward authority figures. Toward work toward education and sport, and most alarming of all, fathers will encourage or embitter, go one way or the other, encourage or embitter their children against Jesus and his church. Fathers, we have a whole lot more power than we realise. And using that power to dominate our children so that they learn to selfishly love themselves like we do, Well, that is a multi-generational disaster that plays out across the world in every nation. Christian fathers, Christian fathers, God tells us to run the other way. Run the other way. And and in fact, while we should, while we should flee, while we should flee from embittering our children, we should not flee from our children. That, That myth of protecting our kids from ourselves by making ourselves absent well again that only actually serves to discourage them more so what on earth do we do well we could try listening to the lord christian fathers we could let's work at listening to the lord let's let's work at becoming countercultural on this issue Let's, let's raise our sons and daughters to be the people God made them to be. Not the people we're making them to be. They're not our project, but to help make them the people God made them to be. And let's be present for them. Let's work to give them hope in their struggles and protect them from harm. Let's lead them to God in their darkness. The only one who can bring them light let, let's cultivate their character to throw off those things that are so damaging to them, and put on the things instead that are. And, and Let's help them know that they are loved, even when they fail your standards. And they need to know that. Oh, Christian dads of Eye Anglican Church, our Lord's commanding us. Let's be countercultural on this. Let's let's listen him maybe and let's give it a shot and let's allow God's grace to cover the rest. Well our last couplet here, it's addressed to slaves and masters, verses 22 to 4 verse 1. This one's obviously longer uh, because it deals with a more complex set of relationships And we may not be slaves or masters, but it is from here, from this passage, where we Christians derive the equivalent of our employee-employer relationships in how we activate and work in the economy of our nation today. We derive it from the passage like this as to how we should behave. And we can only derive it because, well, we're not necessarily doing slavery like they did back then. That's not the way our economy works, for the most part. Back in the Roman Empire, slaves and masters, were that was how their economy worked, where 80 to 90% of the population were slaves. That's how it worked. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, we find that God condemns slave traders and he declares that freedom for a slave is better by far, but he still does not command the overthrow of slavery. And boy, does that make us squirm, doesn't it? Spare a thought for those who heard it first in Colossae. Because remember who was in the room? Everyone was either a master or a slave there. All of them. And there was also a runaway slave there called Onesimus, who was the one carrying this letter from Paul with Tychicus, and whose house was he in? Philemon, his old slave master, who had run away from. Awkward. That's what the context is. Do you think we're sensitive it, this is sensitive. Yes, it is. So how does Paul redeem this? How do we attempt to redeem this? Well, he doesn't try and he doesn't need to. And in fact, neither do we. See, because we're already free in Christ and will be free in Christ eternally, then our present economic status is only temporary. We need to remember that. We're free in Christ already and we will be free in Christ eternally. Therefore, our present Whatever status, whatever it is economically, is only temporary. And nowhere in the entire New Testament is God ever calling us to try and create heaven now before Jesus' return. He doesn't call us to do it. Yes, we can do good things and we should try to do good things, but we're not supposed to be trying to create heaven now. And so, when independence and autonomy are sidelined as being the highest goal that we Christians should be striving for, well, then the field opens for what God wants us in our work and wants us to think about in our work while we await Jesus' return. Dorian James has gone out to check out which car it is. He'll come back in in a minute. It's probably his. It was. All right, what does God want for us in our work while we wait for Jesus' return? Well, it's all very, very simple. Did you notice there what Christian masters are commanded to do? Well, they're commanded to do the right thing because they have a master in heaven who is watching them and evaluating their work. Just like a Christian slave has a master, so a Christian master has a master. And so the same thing applies across. So whether we're more like a slave or a master here, economically, we Christians, what do we have? We have the same heavenly master, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he shows no favoritism. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrong. And so whether we're Christian slave or Christian master in the workplace, the motivation is the same then for us all. Sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord who is our master as working for the Lord, not for humans. We're not working for the man and nor are we working for ourselves. It's the Lord Christ whom we are serving And when he puts it like that in the Bible, everything changes for us, doesn't it? Because work is indeed, it's toilsome and it's tricky and it's full of temptation for us to behave poorly. Whether we're someone under the authority of others or whether we're the one who is under authority. But when we Christians remember it's the Lord Christ whom we are serving, the Lord Christ who will give us an inheritance... Because of his grace, love, and mercy towards us when he returns, well, then, in this temporary stage that we're in, we have the opportunity to be countercultural in the workplace. You and I, slave and master, Onesimus and Philemon, employee, employer, each of us, we work under the lordship of Christ. Who is our master, and who is the one who will set us free from all the toil and all the trouble at His return? Transformative, isn't it? And each of those couplets addressing those issues—it's this—is totally transformative. What's being called to? This is countercultural stuff, and in fact, it's a a countercultural list of commands. And a countercultural list of commands is countercultural. That's the point. As a church community, as we are here, as a church family here, living here in the sight of others in the northern Illawarra, well, here's our opportunity to be different. Not in weird ways, but in some really good ways. Right here in the nitty-gritty of relationships is where we can each live opposite to the world around us and be joyfully different as we go about that. I mean, how different would it be in the northern Illawarra if there was a bunch of people whose marriages were not combative? would that be amazing? And if our relationships between parents and children were not not focused on maximising selfishness, how'd it be different? What if... Because of Jesus, we were faithful employees and excellent bosses. What if we were salt and light, like Jesus calls us to be? Living differently in the world, hour by hour, in the nitty-gritty of our everyday relationships. What if it was obvious amongst us what it actually looks like to live a life of repentance, where grace and love overflow from one to the other and beyond. Might look pretty good. Can we do it? Is it, is it even possible? Well, we're Christians, we have the Holy Spirit, we've got a new identity in Christ, so yes, it's, it's possible... But would we? Will we? It will only happen. We will only even attempt it if we think that God can be trusted. If we think that God can be trusted. And that right there is the heart of it, isn't it? That's the core issue we began with. Can God be trusted? Can God be trusted with my well-being? Can God be trusted with my relationships? Will I let Jesus be the Lord of my life now, not just my eternity later, but my life even now, will I let him be Lord? Well, the choice is voluntary. It's yours to make. As for me and my house, well, in thankfulness to him, who saved us oh, we're gonna keep striving to serve the lord and may god have mercy on us all amen